Let's look together here in Jude, and we'll look in verse number 17 following, and we will conclude our study through the book of Jude. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And then he ends with a beautiful doxology. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. This morning we're going to look at this passage of Scripture finalizing what Jude has given to the reader as the church and as Christians to be aware of the false teaching, the apostates that is so much happening within our culture, society, and in the church. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. And so with these attacks, Jude is going to conclude with this thought of stay in the love of God. Look at verse 21. Right in the, in the middle of all of this ending and conclusion, he reminds us to keep yourselves in the love of God. So this morning, let's look together at this text. Let's ask God to guide us together. Father, our desire this morning as we have, we have purified our hearts before you, confessed falters and sins, and now we have worshipped you through lifting our voices in song. We have worshipped you by giving of our offering and now we worship you by opening our hearts and ears, being attentive to the teaching and preaching of God's word. And so, Lord, guide us in these moments together. Encourage the believer and convict us of areas that need to be changed, areas where we need to be different. And then, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, may they not wander out of these doors hoping or wondering but may they have that assurance today. And so we ask for your mighty hand and mighty work to do your business today. I pray that you'll set me aside as your messenger and help me to communicate only the truths that you would have for us today. Eliminate the outside distractions that will take us away from your text. And we'll be sure to give you honor and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout the study of Jude, we know that we have clearly seen what happens to those who leave the faith and who follow a lifestyle of ungodliness. They will have their day of clear judgment that is going to come from the very personal hand of God. And this act will be in justice, in judgment against their decisions. The warning is written here in this text, not for us to have a textbook or to be in an academia world, but it is given to us rather so that we as a Christian or as readers of this text, we can be encouraged to persevere against the false teaching and the apostasy, which is heavy pressure surrounding us even today. So we as followers of Christ must stay alert, we must use discernment, and we must make wise decisions. Because the attacks that are coming today of the apostasy and of false teachings is that which goes against God's church. 
It causes division, it causes ruin, and it does everything in its power to destroy God's church. But not only against God's church, but it's an attack against God's holiness. It attacks the very essence and truth and reality of who God is. It attacks his personality. And then it attacks also the preservation of our Christian walk. If it can start causing us to doubt or to wonder or to fear or to worry, then it can cause us to not be strong in our Christian walk and effective with where God has placed us. And so that is why today we study what Jude has encouraged his readers to stay in the love of God. And we ask the question, how do we do that? In verses 17 through 19, first of all, we see that we need to make a priority of God's word in our life. This making a priority of God's word in our life is something that has happened all the way from the very beginning. Since the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God's word was was twisted. It was, it was caused by the enemy to be deceived, and, and uh, there were much that was taking place with the very words of God. And the enemy will try to cause confusion and doubt over the word of God today. The truth of God's word is what helps protect our mind. It protects our heart. When we read God's word and meditate on God's word, when we make it a very important part of our life and who we are, we can very easily see and discern against the false teaching, that which is trying to take our minds in a different direction. Discernment is built when we study the scriptures and we know the truth. So the more we know, the better we are. And knowing, as G.I. Joe said, knowing is half the battle, right? Was that G.I. Joe? I should have probably cross-referenced that. Okay, G.I. Joe. Now, Jude reminds his readers to remember that who gave us this word. He says, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. These apostles were the men that God had chosen. Jesus had many disciples, but he had a selected few of apostles. The apostles were commissioned to take the message of good news. The apostles were given the calling to go and to share the power of the gospel. And so these men were called very specifically. They had to see the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, and they had to live during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And with the message that they had, they knew they had to warn of the coming apostasy. Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, Matthew 7, would say, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus would set the tone of warning throughout all of time and the apostles would follow in their writings as Peter, Paul, and John would write in their letters here what we hold as the New Testament as warnings of the outside attacks that are coming into the church. So we know that if this was happening in the first century, it's definitely happening again here in the 21st century. And we look at the results of what takes place in verse number 18. Because the results is that they told you there should be mockers in the last time. So who said it? The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they say? That they would be mockers, that they would walk after their own ungodly lusts or their passions. And then what did, or why did they say it? Is because the warning in verse number 19 says, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. So they come as mockers in the last time. They walk after their own ungodly lusts, their ungodly passions, fulfilling what they want at the very moment. 
And so if they want to succeed, they will do what it takes to succeed. They will walk over people, they will climb, and they will hurt, and they will devastate. They will do whatever it takes. And then in verse number 19, these are they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Holy Spirit. And so we look at these deadly results. And if you want to avoid becoming duped by the deceiver and you want to avoid becoming a statistic of Satan, and you want to avoid becoming yet another one who has been swayed by the apostasy and false teaching, then you must guard your heart and mind with the digestion of the Word of God. It has to be a priority. It has to be something that is of utmost importance, so that when you know the Word of God, you can tell when the message is steering away from the Word of God. And we learn God's Word not only doctrinally but also practically and we apply it to our life so that we can avoid the worldly minded and the division causers. And then we also look in verse 20 and 21 to purposely grow in our Christian walk. Not only are we making God's Word a priority but we're also growing in our Christian walk. In verse 20 He says, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. These two verses show us that discernment will lead to discretion. Discernment is going to, excuse me, discernment is going to lead to sanctification. And uh, that, that process is going to be clear and evident when we are purposely growing in the Christian walk. There's a mommy that looks to her toddler and says to stand still while waiting in a line. There's the dad who glances at the teenager to say, sit still while sitting in a program or a church service. But the Christian life is far from standing still. The Christian life, though we say, oh, well, yes, but Psalm reminds us, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. There are times in our life where we must be still, where we must be silent, where we must be waiting on God. There are certainly times like that, but the Christian life is an ever-growing process. The Christian life is with constant moving. The Christian life is, is progressing. It is, it is knowing God more. It is knowing God better. It is, it is making God's Word a priority. John Maxwell wrote in his book, Developing the Leader Within, He writes about a tourist group that was visiting a a very small, picturesque village. It was a really beautiful little town, and people would stop. They would get out, and they would walk through the the cobble streets. And there was a group that was walking by. An old man was sitting beside a fence, and somebody looked over and asked him in a very patronizing way, said, Hey, were there any great men born in this village? The old man simply replied, Nope, only babies were born in this village. We know that every person who is born again begins a growth process. We, as new creations in Jesus Christ, become as babes. And we come in eager to grow and eager to learn. It doesn't happen overnight that we become a giant of the faith. We're not looking for people to automatically be this huge hero of the faith. But we know that this is a process, whether the new convert is 6 or 60, that person is a new Christian and needs the priority of growing in their Christian walk. A baby Christian who has been saved for 40 years is an absolute tragedy. 
someone who has been saved 30 or 40 years yet doesn't know their word, the word of God, or doesn't have a growth process or is no different from day one to day 40 years later, that is certainly a tragic story to tell. God intends for us to grow and to mature. And until we learn to dig into the meat of the word ourselves, we will never grow. Now look at this process. God is going to use Jude to write some action words here. And I want you to look at these two verses. Verse number 20, he says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. So we see that building up is this word for constructing. It's, it is developing. It is a process there. How many of you were here before the property advancement project took place? Okay, how many raised your hand? You were here before this, all this mess was here, okay? So a lot of people in here, half and half, you came onto property and you saw a, a nice looking modular building over there, which is now our church offices, but you didn't see in your mind that that used to be just a bunch of grass along there, and you don't know that behind there, instead of nice parking and a retention pond, there used to be an old riggedy uh, playground back there, and, uh, and so you didn't see that. Um, then when you looked at this building, you didn't know maybe the, the, the size of our lobby or the size of our restrooms, or uh, you didn't know that we had such a beautiful uh, temporary lobby over here. And so all of that just didn't happen overnight. It's been a process, right? It's been a construction project. And in this building up on your most holy faith is something that is a constant process, each day when you come on property, there are new guys doing new things and accomplishing new tasks, a part of the construction project. But what if we had come to a point where guys said, I'm done, I'm walking off, I want no more. Well, what if Scott Paul, our general contractor, said, I'm not going to be on the project anymore, I'm walking away. Now that has happened in other projects, but thankfully not here and not with our general contractor. He's never done that. But when you think uh, sometimes in our own Christian walk, we like to just take off the tool belt and leave it behind and say, I'm going to take two weeks away. I'm not going to build up my most holy faith. Or tragedy happens. Yeah, they got the ladies' restroom done, new drywall, new paint, new tile. Everything was done there. And you know what? A rainstorm came through as they had just taken off the roof and they could not stop the water from coming in and damaged the ceiling and the drywall in the very brand new restroom. And you know what the general contractor and team said? Let's get to it. Let's fix it and make it anew again. You know what we do in our Christian walk when the waters come pouring down at such a rapid rate that we can't save the drywall or the ceiling or the lights? We throw it all in and say, I'm off this project. I want no more of this. And we give up on God. We give up on life. We give up on our faith. Those who give in to the apostate message and the false teaching are the ones who take their tool belt off, the ones who clock out, the ones who pull off of property, the ones who say, I want no more of the building up construction project. Then he uses another action word. He says, not only building up yourselves on your most holy faith, but praying in the Holy Ghost. This praying is that which would be in the Spirit's will. Too often we pray in our will as opposed to the Spirit's will. And this is his praying for his desires, praying for his guidance, praying for his commands, praying for his will to be done in this circumstance. Certain situations in our life unfold and happen not as we would have penned the script, but as the Holy Spirit has led and walked beside us. 
we must be willing to pray in the spirit of the Holy Ghost. Then he says to keep yourselves in the love of God. This word keep here is to guard, it's to care for. This past Wednesday we studied Psalm 121. We saw that God is our helper and our keeper. That keeper is a guard, is a carer, and we are to guard ourselves in the love of God. It is that protection that we find. It is to look for that care. This remaining in God's love is not a matter of staying in God's good graces. Uh, sometimes we think in earthly relationships that if I can stay in their good grace, everything will be fine. Everything will be smooth. And we look at our Heavenly Father in that same way. He says, if I can just stay in His good graces, everything will work out just fine. But that's not what this is. This is finding ourselves surrounded and guided by His love. It's really the great motivation which leads us to obedience. He said for us to, to love Him. If you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. So surrounding ourselves, caring and guarding ourselves in the love of God is going to lead us to nothing less than obedience to his commands. That's when we find ourselves getting into so much trouble. It's because we've left the care of surrounding ourselves in God's love. And we begin to pinpoint things on him and we think that he's not fair. Or we think that he gave us a, a, a raw deal or the script he wrote for our life isn't the same as so-and-so and he's not providing here and he's not doing this. But when we find ourselves guarding, keeping ourselves in the love of God, it leads us to nothing but obedience. And then he continues by saying, keep uh, keeping yourselves, looking for the mercy, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So what is that word looking there? It's the word for anxiously awaiting. And I love that thought of anxiously awaiting. You parents remember your, your children anxiously awaiting for something very exciting. And so the question is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we almost there? How much longer? And those become the questions. Or as two little girls peek their head out the blinds to see if grandma and grandpa have arrived yet. And they say, are they here yet? Are they here yet? And, and with modern technology, it's really spoiled us because we get the text, uh, we're five minutes away. We'll be there shortly. Uh, whereas we used to wonder if they're five minutes away, 50 minutes away, or did they break down and they're five hours away? And woohoo, we have more time, right? And so uh, that's the in-laws. But, uh, you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> So we ask ourselves, are we awaiting, anxiously awaiting? And it says here that we are looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So anxiously awaiting or looking for what? What Jude is explaining here is that we as Christians are motivated by the Lord's return. The motivation of the Lord's return, that which is that eternal life that we have in Him. It's anxiously awaiting for him to, to extend his mercy, not only the mercy he extended for our salvation, but the mercy that God will extend to his church when he removes us from the surrounding evil of this world. And we anxiously await for that return. That's why so many people long for heaven. That's why people await so eagerly for the return of Christ, for his church, Yet, while we're still here, we're motivated with the commission. We're motivated with the task at hand to be ambassadors, apostles, given the commission to go and tell the gospel. But yet, at the same time, we are looking, anxiously awaiting for that return. You know, the apostates, 
The only thing that they can look to the future for is their future judgment. But God's people are anxiously and expecting, looking for this mercy to finally be removed from the evil of this world. You understand that growth will take time, but it must be active. The building project, same example, it's taken time. It's taken a lot of time to get the process going. It's taken a lot of time to get the final product where it's going to be. It takes time building up process growth. It all takes time. I was reminded this past week, Brooklyn, she commented about Bailey's growth pattern and uh, what she was telling us as we were on our way to Chick-fil-A earlier this week, um, we had uh, gone four days earlier. Maybe that's why Brooklyn's got a stomach bug. I don't know. Chick-fil-A a little bit too much. But we go to Chick-fil-A. The girls love the, the play in the playground area. They meet new friends. They get to talk and play and chase. And uh, so we were there a couple of week, about a week and a half ago, and we measured Bailey. Bailey's getting really tall, and she's about this close to the line that says you can't, be a, you know, can't go in here and play. And so we commented, oh, Bailey, it won't be long before you just have to sit and watch and, and uh, Brooklyn will be playing and she, oh, you know, and, and then of course Brooklyn's like, oh no, I've lost my friend, my sister won't be there. So then as we're processing through that, we, we're going back four days later to do the same thing. I usually like to send them in there so I can study and prepare for something. And uh, so they're, on the way, Brooklyn goes, well, I don't know if Bailey's going to be able to go today. And I said, well, why not? Well, she's probably grown too tall. And again, this is how far away. I'm like, Brooklyn. I said, it's only been four days. She said, Daddy, you grow at night when you sleep. I said, well, who's been teaching you how the body works? She had in her mind that this was instantaneous. The next time we go, she's whoop, because she's been sleeping for four nights. She's probably grown way too much. But we know that growth will definitely take time but it is something that's always active. Verse 22 and 23, it gives us the thought of acting on the basis of discernment. And you know, this is something certainly, as Jude is writing in our spiritual life, but something that we benefit from greatly even in our practical life, that we make decisions based on discernment, that we don't get ourselves into circumstances or situations without thinking through those things. But Jude is writing in the situation of spiritualness, And he says, of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by them, or by the flesh. What I see here is there are people who are constantly being swayed by the false message of the apostates. Uh, Probably everybody in here would give an account to somebody in your life that you know has been duped by the deceiver. And the message that they have in their head, they are just so enamored by it. And that is what they're following, and that is what they're living. And they do it with somewhat of a clear conscience, and they think that that's they have thrown all of their eggs in one basket, and they have been deceived and blinded by the great deceiver. So we must ask ourselves, what responsibility do I have to those who are being influenced by the apostates and their message? What responsibility do I have? Now, here's what we want to do is wash our hands of them and want nothing to do with it because it's a very difficult conversation to have, or we're concerned that we will be swayed by them. That goes all the way back to number one and number two. So before we get to this place of discernment on how do I speak truth into the lives of someone who is duped by the messages of false teaching, we have to make sure that our life has already made a priority of God's word in our life and that we're purposely growing in our Christian walk. 
And if those two things have happened, verse 17 through 21, now we come to what is our responsibility and how do we help? And Jude is going to give us some insight here of how to use discernment. Now, there was an elderly woman that stood on a very busy street corner. In, it was in the middle of rush hour traffic. She was fearful, confused, and therefore hesitant to cross the street by herself. So finally, a gentleman came up to her and asked if he could cross the street with her. Well, she was very grateful in her heart, and she was really relieved by this. So she took his arm and stepped into the very busy intersection. As they proceeded, she grew progressively alarmed as the zigzag traffic randomly crossed the street to the blare of horns and they screeched and locked on their brakes. People were yelling at them and she is very much afraid at this very moment of what's taking place. Finally, after reaching their destination, she turned to the gentleman and complained with the most graciousness she could. She said, you almost got us killed. You, you walk like you are blind or something. And he said, well, ma'am, I am. That's why I asked if I could cross the street with you. <laughs> the dear lady did not really choose the best choice there. It's definitely the blind leading the blind. The man who she thought was a steady arm and sufficient guide was actually desperate for a guidance himself. He didn't have a clue of what to do. Remember when Jesus speaks of the blind guiles, And when the blind lead the blind, they both end up in the ditch. We don't want to be the blind leading the blind. We don't want to engage in these conversations unless we're prepared. We don't want to to tackle the arm and think that we're going to be guided with truth and hope by the time we get into the middle of the intersection that somebody has figured out where to go and how to go. So we can't go into this conversation or into this task without using biblical discernment. And so here... Jude is going to give us two groups of people that I see that we need to exercise discernment and still reach out to them. The first one in verse 22 are the doubters. These are the people who are wavering in their faith, and they may be who Peter even recorded by calling them to be unstable souls in 2 Peter 2.14. They are saved, but they are not securely grounded. And the response to them is of having of some having compassion, making a difference. The word making a difference there is that which would actually say that we are to have compassion to those who are doubters. Often we have translated making a difference based on the English text of, I make a difference when I have compassion. But when we study the original language, we learn that it's actually saying for us to have compassion on those who are doubters. So these doubters are all around us. These doubters are really growing in number. We said a few weeks ago the startling statistics of those in the United States of America who claim no religious affiliation and claim to be atheist. 13% of the United States population. An interesting thought, but that's not who these doubters are. These doubters are the ones who have wandered from the faith. These are doubters who were once securely grounded, but are no longer securely grounded. 
These are ones who have been swayed by the TV pastor or preacher or the guy on the radio or the guy knocking on their door or somebody who sat with them to share with them what they believe. And there was no discernment, there was no guard, there was no truth to fall back on. And all of a sudden, those who used to be grounded firmly have now become doubters and they're wavering in their faith. And do you realize that we have an opportunity to show compassion to them and look to guide them through love and patience? Do you know what my natural response to them is to write them off and not waste my time? Now, there are times in where the, the Proverbs remind us not to return a fool uh, to his folly. And there's the time where we've got to be careful and discerning with how much we engage. But Jude is saying to show this compassion to them, this love and patience. So what that tells me is we cannot easily give up. Now when you say, well, I have tried and I have tried, and that may be true. And you may have had conversation after conversation after conversation. And there are times where you just leave them in God's hands. There are times where you just say, I am praying for your eyes to be reopened. You know where you grew up. You know what the truth is. You know what changed you and shaped you as a young man or as a young lady. You know what it really means to follow after God. You remember the days where you cried at an altar and you begged God for his guidance and forgiveness in your life. You know what it's like to have a spirit of revival and renewal. You know what it's like to see answers to prayer. You know what it's like to see God miraculously heal people and change people and transform people. You know what that's like. So you may pretend right now that you want to wander away from that and have nothing more to do with God. And you may want to pretend like you're a doubter but there's something inside of you that is stirring within your heart that says everything that I'm pursuing is empty and everything I left behind was fulfilling. But I, in my prideful way, am going to try to continue to take steps of action to fulfill my own passions. Go back to 17, 18, and 19 and you'll see these verses telling us that they're going to be following after their worldly passions. They're going to follow after that which is totally disconnected and those are the doubters that we embrace with love and patience. And that's not easy, but we must continue. Then verse number 23, he gives us not only the doubters, but the convinced. One Bible scholar put it this way about the convinced here, interpreting verse 23, that others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The convinced is a real challenge because you're dealing with someone who is already convinced by the apostate way. When you travel up and down Lakeland Highlands Road, you're going to find a smorgasbord of churches. That's what we always call it. And as you will see some of these variety of churches, you will see some of those churches who are teaching and preaching opposite of God's gospel, the word of God. And they are true apostates in our day with a false message. And they are standing around Lake Hollingsworth with their, with their pamphlets and their conversations. They are knocking on the doors in our communities. They are, they are starting conversations with people so that they can plant seeds of doubt against God's word and cause them to be swayed by the false teaching and apostasy that they're giving. So these are the convinced. The confrontation is real and it has to be strong.
And as God is the ultimate source of salvation, he uses Christians as a means to reach lost souls. So again, we don't approach the convinced as washing our hands of them and saying, they will just die and burn and go to hell. But the reality is, is that we still plant those gospel seeds, hoping that something will grab a hold of them and the blinders will be removed and they will see the love of Jesus in the right way. Notice what he says, pulling in this word here, he says to pull them out of the fire. That's the word snatching them. It's a picture that is a beautiful picture of snagging someone away from the danger, snatching them out of what is going to be destructive. This too takes love and patience. And that's why we remind the church we must break down barriers, build relationships, and plant gospel seeds. The breaking down of barriers takes love and patience. Building relationship takes discernment and perseverance. And planting gospel seed takes boldness and passion. Boy, did somebody write that down? That's good. I need to remember that. We got to grab a hold of those six things. Now, when this series is all said and done, and we wrap it up and we conclude it here in a few moments, we can trace back at what the postcards have taught us. And we will conclude with a very crucial lesson that all of this comes down to number four, verse 24 and 25. We must be yielding ourselves to the Savior. To take only a few minutes on verse 24 and 25, because I could park here for 30 minutes, but today is not that day. We will do injustice to this text because this text is rich in verse 24 and 25. These two verses are a series in and of themselves, and maybe one day we'll come back to verse 24 and 25 together. But today, I want to wrap it up by saying, as the redeemed, all of the doctrines of salvation are so precious to us. When we think of justification, and we think of regeneration, and conversion, and adoption, and those are very precious to us as they draw our attention on the, the salvation that God has granted to a sinner a wretched sinner like me. But there's one doctrine that stands out to be so incredible and so assuring, and that's the doctrine of eternal security. It's the, it's the preservation of the saints. It's the once saved, always saved. It is the mindset that says, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. It is the assurance that says he will keep us from falling. He will present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Second Peter chapter 1 gives us a great section where in our Discover Parkway class, we talk about within our doctrinal statement, we talk about a salvation and eternal security. Because that's certainly something that separates us from some other beliefs is that we believe that once saved, always saved, that you cannot lose your salvation. And with that, we say that the, the promise is of God, of eternal security, but the assurance of salvation is man's responsibility. Because when you think of the assurance of your salvation, we have all the hope and promises that have been given to us. It's just that sometimes the doubt sneaks into our heart and life because of heavy, guilty baggage that we're carrying, known sin in our life, separation from our Savior, and all of a sudden we begin to think that nothing is different or changed about me. So this assurance comes when we realize that I just got some baggage I need to, I need to be forgiven for. I need to claim, be renewed, 1 John 1, 9, confess and gain His forgiveness. 
But in 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes in the first section, verses 3 through 7, and talks about the new life in Jesus and how it adds one thing to another and how our life is shaped by these. But then he says in verse number 9, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. When your life is not in a process of growth, in sanctification, when you're not striving to be more like Jesus Christ, you forget that you have been purged from your sins. You cannot see afar off. You're unbarren and you are unfruitful. And you realize something has changed. So we must yield ourselves to the Savior. Judson Vandeventer wrote, the beloved hymn that we sing, I Surrender All. He wrote it in 1896. You're familiar with the words. He says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. The second verse, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. Then last, all to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel thy sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation, glory, Glory to his name. I surrender all. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. In just a moment, we'll sing that hymn together. But do not sing that with us if you cannot say, All to Jesus I surrender. If your life is not yielded to him, if your life is not waiting for his guidance and direction, if you have 10 and 2 gripped on the, driving play, on the driving wheel and you are in control and you want nothing for God's will in your life, you cannot say, I surrender all. If you want to buzz through life and you want to fly through life and do things in your own time and in your own way and you don't once want to yield to hear the Savior's call, if you don't once want to have God's guidance in your life, don't pretend to say, I surrender all. So this yielding to the Savior says that to the only wise God our Savior be glory, be majesty, be dominion and power now and forever. So to the Christian today, we have a tremendous and joyful certainty that as we will live in this world, we can live in the love of God. And when this life here on earth is finally over, we get to go to the next world and experience because of that love of God. But the passion and goal of our earthly living is lived out in the mindset of staying in the love of God and to those who do not know Jesus in a very personal way, you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I ask you with an intense emotion that you look to the cross. As we sang this morning about the Father's love. And when we sang those so that song, when you looked at those lyrics, 
And without just wandering off in some la-la land, if you saw those lyrics for what they were, they walked you through the gospel message of what Jesus suffered in our place. The Bible tells us that he paid the payment and price for our sins. And that today, not based on anything we have done, we can receive him as our very personal Lord and Savior. All because the gift has been offered to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. This morning, as the seeker, find the love of God here today. And as the Christian, stay in the love of God today. Father, thank you for your direction this morning. And we thank you for Jude and his writing. Thank you as he encouraged the believers after being so directive on his warnings of the apostasy that was present. And then he encourages the believer to persevere and to use discernment and to stay attached to our God. So Father, however you want to use these closing moments to guide in our life, I just ask that you will. Shape us, mold us, and change us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. For it's his name we pray these things. Amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, sir and ma'am, you're here today, but you may not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The whole premise for what we're speaking on today is that the power of the gospel changes and shapes lives, and it can change you. And if that day has never come in your life where you have asked God to forgive you of your sins, and to take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If that day has never happened, I want to encourage you today. Would you open your heart to that truth? Would you open to that reality of how today can be the day of your salvation? You know, we don't know what tomorrow might bring. We're not promised another day. But what we do know for sure is that after this life here on earth, we'll either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to give you a a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It's not magic dust or a magic wand. It's a guide. And it can only happen if you really mean it. If it comes from a life that says, I'm empty and I need Jesus to fill it. Here's the prayer. You just pray it to yourself as you pray it to God. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. And I am in need of your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place. Today, I accept the free gift of salvation. And I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. I am committing to you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. And thank you for giving me new life through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if that's you today, sir or ma'am, I'd love to rejoice with you. Typically, we don't go through that prayer every week. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us and prompts us to give that. But again, if that was you, we're not going to just leave you on your own. We want to give you guidance and help to know what you prayed, prayed and why you prayed it. But it has to be on your own admission. Nothing forced, but by your own free will. So today, would you say, Peter, that was me. I prayed that prayer. I want to make it known to you that I prayed that prayer to God. I asked him to, con- to forgive me of my sins and for him to be my Lord and Savior. That was me today. Anybody like that today? Just raise your hand. That was me, Peter, today. I prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer. 
and sir, ma'am, all across the auditorium to Christians, how has God worked in your heart today? Would you give that over to him? Would you allow him the freedom to now do something with your life? Would you stand with me? Let's sing that first verse. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. As we sing together, feel free to take this time to kneel there at your seat, sit there where you are. You can kneel here at the altar. If you need to talk to God about anything that was given today from his word, use this time now as we sing. We're going to sing that first verse, all to Jesus.